Welcome to Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast for people who want a better sense of mental health and how to achieve it. I'm Justin Lewis, your host and licensed marriage and family therapist. On this episode, Jill Terhune, licensed professional counselor with a specialty in helping people with trauma, is going to join me to discuss just that, coping with trauma. This episode was recorded um, several months ago and has been in the can, if you will. Uh, It's been ready to be shared for just the right time. Jill talked about EMDR treatment via telehealth not too long ago, and uh, so I would recommend that you go back to that episode after hearing this uh, podcast on trauma. But first, uh, hear what she has to say about the definition of trauma, what behaviors it may lead to, and what someone can do about it. But before all that, I want you to know that Mapping Healthy Minds podcast is sponsored by Compass Counseling. We all have mental health and taking care of it can't wait. You can learn more about Compass Counseling or book an appointment online at www.compasscounseling.com. Compass offers online counseling and in-person counseling in Paducah, Henderson, and Owensboro, Kentucky. Welcome back to the show, Jill. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So I've heard you talk about the difference in little T trauma and big T trauma. Can you explain more about what the difference in those two things are? Well, the way that I conceptualize trauma, well, one way that I conceptualize trauma is, or that trauma is conceptualized, (laughs) is that it's anything that overwhelms a, a person's ability to cope. And so that can be subjective. Um, I think a lot of times when people hear about trauma, you think about, you know, a soldier or someone who's gone through war or a natural disaster or um, sexual assault, which all of those things are definitely traumatic. Um, And, you know, I guess I would call those big T traumas. Mm -hmm. Um, But trauma can be somewhat on a continuum when you think about For example, maybe a child getting severely embarrassed in a school play could be traumatic. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And it's all about what that person kind of takes away from that situation, like what they learn about themselves, what they learn about the world, and um, how their body kind of stores that experience. Mm, Okay. Yeah, so would that mean flashbacks? Would that mean talk more about how trauma impacts somebody over the long haul? So, um, in a lot of ways, trauma um, comes down to the nervous system. So, um, we have um, the parasympathetic, we have the sympathetic nervous system, which basically is that fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm -hmm. Um, And when that is activated, um, our muscles tense up, our heart rate increases, our breathing gets shallower, and this is to prepare us to fight to run away or to freeze at um, when we are confronted with a survival situation or some kind of threat. Mm-hmm. And um, 
you know, thank goodness we have this because right. if you step out into the road and a car is coming at you, you're going to be back up on the sidewalk before you even realize that right. um, something that you're even in a survival situation. This is yeah. like a low level brain function that um, in a lot of ways works on like a subconscious level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when an individual experiences something traumatic, which for a child, a lot more things can be traumatic than maybe when we start to get older. You know, our brains mm-hmm. are still developing. And I think one thing that I, I like to talk about a lot is that a child has to be loved to survive childhood. And so instances where the child feels unloved are somewhat survival situations. Mm. Um, and so instances... They're left w- to fend for themselves, kind of. Right. right. So... Um, maybe just a misattunement with a caregiver or like a time when a a child feels like severe shame, um, that can cause long-term impacts on how that individual feels about their personal self-worth. And that Mm. can have a lot of different impacts on how they attach to other people later on. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it could look like flashbacks or, you know, in the way that if, for example, going back to um, the instance of getting embarrassed in a school play, you know, if maybe every time that that person goes into a theater, their heart rate increases, you know, mm-hmm. they get sick to their stomach, you know, those kinds of things have that kind of those right. somatic responses. And they may see that moment when the lights were shining down on them in sure. front of the whole audience, those kinds of things. Yeah, okay. So I can impact the way that um, the rest of our life goes as far as being in front of people. It's already a, a difficult thing for people to do is to be uh, public speaking. But then if that sort of experience has happened in the past, that can even make that more difficult. Well, our brain has a specific storage system just for traumatic memories so that we can access them more readily um, in moments where we are triggered. So... Um, and you know that has a, that has a lot of implications. Mm-hmm. So I recently saw that there's some research that, um, and this kind of goes from what you were saying. Research says that problems in childhood can even lead to things like addiction in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Could you comment on that? So the adverse childhood experiences study, or the ACE study, looked at individual looked at children who experience adverse childhood experiences or trauma. So that would be things like having an, an adult in the family who was addicted to substances or had a mental health problem or was physically abusive or maybe they experienced neglect or sexual assault or something mm-hmm. along those lines, that those individuals are much more likely to experience physical health problems later in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of, the theory, one of the theories that they talked about in this study was that individuals who um, go through those kinds of experiences may be more likely to adopt behaviors that might lead to um, lead to illness. Okay. So um, and and yeah, just talking about like leading to to substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, you know, everything that we do as as animals is a way to cope, and so. You know, if you're experiencing emotions that you don't know how to cope with, sometimes you use a substance to um, mm-hmm. to avoid those 
those emotions or those sensations or those thoughts and if you've gone through something really traumatic I mean a lot of times you'll have intrusive experiences and anxiety and sadness and things that that Mm -hmm. are overwhelming yeah I uh, anecdotally I guess can speak to this as I do therapy with people that struggle with addiction pretty regularly and um, there is almost always some sort of family trauma uh, rejection from family member a lot um, Mm -hmm. actually is a key one and so people either are looking to cope with those feelings of rejection, they're looking for acceptance in some way, and entering the drug culture is an easy, easy way to find acceptance. So there's kind of another element to that as well. And then well, you get kind of connected in, and addiction sets in, and then, as we know, addiction just creates more problems for somebody. And it's interesting that you bring up, like, talking about connection, because a lot of times um, interpersonal violence can have more uh can have the impact of not only causing post-traumatic stress symptomology but also i mean and this is included in that symptomology but it can have the additional effect of really negatively impacting your ability to trust other people Mm -hmm. um and 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 i think that that makes it really hard to connect Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a that's a good point there's a lot that's being um messed up i guess when someone experiences trauma young right it affects it affects everything and like when you think about you know the statistic that an individual who experiences sexual assault that that's correlated with the 10 leading causes of death and that's Mm. that's really kind of what i was referring to when i'm talking about the ace study that Mm -hmm. you know individuals who experience those adverse childhood experiences are more likely to you know, die of heart disease. Mm-hmm. They're more likely. You know, th- there's a lot of different things that are that are more likely to happen after that. And right. I know that 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 sounds scary. And I, I don't <laughs> I don't say those things to be scary, but just to be validating. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a lot for like a child's little body to go through those kinds of things. Sure. And, and you talked about like rejection of like a family member. You know, they found in research as well that um, neglect actually has. M- even more of a negative impact in a lot of ways than, mm. than um, just outright abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think these are important things to think about because, you know, the majority of the, a, a big majority of the population has experienced some kind of, some kind of trauma. And I think mm-hmm. in my personal view, a lot of mental health issues are because of experience, those experiences. Whenever I've been doing this 10 years now, and one of the things that I've learned that kind of, surprised me a little bit was the percentage of people that have in some way experienced some level of abuse in their life Mm -hmm. Um, so I just say that for anybody that's listening and might think well I'm probably the only one in this town that's experienced it or you know what I mean like just so people know that you're definitely not alone Um, and there we don't want to paint a hopeless picture either there are things that people can do to to work to heal from this Mm -hmm. so Let's um, transition into that mode a little bit about how you as a specialist help people deal with trauma. So when an individual first comes in to see me, uh, my first question is, are you safe? Um, So is there any kind of, are there any suicidal thoughts? You know, are you experiencing domestic violence? If that's the case, then the first thing we do is we just start to safety plan. We just make mm-hmm. sure um, that we get you into a safe environment, you know. And um, after that, it's all about empowerment. So really providing psychoeducation, like talking about, like, these things that you've experienced are 
held in your body and you're feeling a specific way because of what you've gone through Mm -hmm. Um, and really, you know, building that relationship because the prerequisite to doing any kind of um, therapy, but especially um, trauma-focused therapy, is to create that safe environment Mm -hmm. to make sure that that individual feels feels safe in the office with me, Um, that it's going to be a non-judgmental environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... After that, we start doing things to regulate emotions. So one of the um, cornerstone things about trauma is that it makes the past become the present, where you're re-experiencing things that you um, that you experienced in the past. Um, also projecting that past into the future where maybe those kinds of things will happen again. And so there's really not a lot of time where you're living in the present moment. And we all struggle with that. Um, Mm -hmm. But when an individual comes in to to me, one of the first things I usually start working on is mindfulness, like Mm. in the moment experiencing, you know, what's what, what your um, senses are experiencing in the moment. Like, can you feel your feet on the floor? Can you feel your hips in the chair? Do you notice Mm -hmm. that you're breathing? What are the sounds that are going on around you right now? Because taking a deep breath is one of the fastest ways to engage the opposite system of the sympathetic nervous system, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's that rest and digest. And so, um, you know, we start to work on like you do have control over um, Mm -hmm. deactivating that system when you actually are not in a survival situation, when you cognitively know, okay, like I'm just in this room right now, like I'm not in a survival situation, you can start to learn to calm mm-hmm. your system. After that, we start to work on distress tolerance. So basically what that means is um, being able to tolerate your emotions and the distress that comes up, being able to bring it up, sit with it, feel it, cry it out. Because mm. that's really necessary um, when it comes to working through the traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and then throughout treatment, there's always relationship building. Sure. You, know, you need a really firm support system to... Um, to go through a trauma-focused treatment in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all need need and deserve other people. Um, and then after all of that is kind of in place, um, we start the trauma processing piece. And so that that can look like a lot of different kinds of mm-hmm. modalities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I guess to... Uh condense that you want to make sure and set a safe place for people and then at that point they kind of have to get outside themselves a little bit to um, address some of the trauma that's going on and um, let that out yes so research shows and i've found in my practice that um, when an individual is able to um, go back and take a hard look at what they've gone through and process it in detail um the the memories themselves start to feel more like they happened in the past um mm-hmm. and they're um less disturbing and then therefore the present triggers are less disturbing um and so uh one of the most effective ways to do that is emdr um which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing mm-hmm. um and I was just about to ask you about emdr <laughs> Yeah, so EMDR is one of the most effective forms of treatment for individuals that have experienced trauma. Um, 
It's recommended by the VA, the APA, the World Health Organization, um, and it incorporates eye movement, which I think is um, usually something kind of new and somewhat odd for people. Um, But I like to talk about how, um, if you've ever heard of REM sleep, the rapid eye movement that happens when we're in that kind of dream state of sleep that they mm-hmm. think Harvard Harvard researchers think that there may be a connection between the way that we process subconscious material in our sleep and the way that um, EMDR the the biological mechanisms that we use in EMDR. Mm. Um, I can totally geek out on EMDR, <laughs> so I don't know how much you want to know about that, but I do want to know and talk a little bit more about that, but also. Um, Maybe before we get too far into that, see your opinion on this. I know for me, and I have read other things, it's not just me, that our memories don't always serve us accurately. Mm-hmm. And so the memories that we have of certain things or don't have could be way off from reality. Sure. So um, so that piece comes up a lot in treatment. And um one thing that I like to say is that although your memories may not be accurate, they are still valid. So what I mean by that is that impacting the person, it's still true. Yeah. Like you're remembering it that way and it's impacting your life Mm -hmm. and it's important for us to work through that. Yeah. So are are there any challenges involved in false memories possibly, or you just kind of address it as if that's fact? So, um, the most innate part of a memory is stored in the body. So typically like if, and all, so all of the ways that I process trauma, I'm going to ask somebody what they're experiencing in their body. Like, do you feel that in your chest? Like, are you having a, is your chest feeling tight or heavy or your shoulders or is your stomach upset or your fingers kind of tingly? So like, Mm -hmm. even if they don't have a, even if they don't have a specific image, you know, there's usually a specific thought that goes with that Mm -hmm. memory, a negative belief about the self, something along the lines of I'm not good enough or I'm not safe or I'm unlovable or something Mm -hmm. along those lines that they learned in that moment. And then it's stored in the body. And then, you know, we can just go with that. Like just notice that, just Mm -hmm. feel it. And usually there's this, catharsis of emotion you know and this release Mm -hmm. um that individuals will feel and and um and they're able to kind of move through it and especially um individuals who are adults that experienced childhood trauma a lot of times um they're able to see it from more from the adult's perspective um right yeah yeah and and so you you kind of asked about like problems with having inaccurate memories well yeah i mean that that is that is the problem the problem typically is that the seven-year-old who experienced the neglect or the abuse had no other way to conceptualize that other than well this is my fault i must not be a very good child or Mm -hmm. i would be better taken care of or something along those lines where you know an adult can look at that situation and say you're just as lovable as any other seven-year-old and you did absolutely nothing wrong and it's a lot easier to do that with somebody else but you know, I think in, in therapy, what you're doing is you're turning around and, and having that compassion towards yourself. Sure. Yeah. And really that's interpretation of an event rather than a memory issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so in therapy we can reframe, we can help people see that the narrative that they've created in their life and confirm it through other pieces of things that happen to them does not have to be the narrative that they live by. Right. So, um, 
no one's going to come into trauma-focused treatment and forget their trauma. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's not the point. And you wouldn't want to because it has created who you are in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. But what, um, what you can change is how you react to that experience yeah. in the now. Yeah. Okay. So let's um, circle back around into EMDR because I think a lot of people are curious about exactly what this is. There are some people that raise an eyebrow to whether EMDR is effective possibly, but I think that it is very effective just based on my work um, being in the same office as you. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the research is there. Um. And the research is there. <laughs> Fine. It's not just anecdotal. That's right. The research is there. It has nothing to do with knowing someone who does it. Um, so, yeah, talk a little bit more about what that looks like EMDR if someone is walking in and doing a, a session with you EMDR type session so um, I like to talk about my personal experience before I was trained in EMDR because that helps me now I've been doing it so long and I've had so much success and like it's just you know that I can kind of get away from what it was like before I knew what it was and how mm-hmm. it worked um, and I thought it sounded like I mean, voodoo. I, I didn't understand it. You know, it was like, right. I, I'm going to wave my fingers in front of somebody's eyes and they're going to feel better. And, you know, I'm a highly critical thinker. And So um, I don't have to feel so bad about thinking about that no, at one point in my no. career. Okay, that's good to know. And, you know, I, um, but, you know, I went to the training because I believe in evidence-based practices. Yeah. Um, and... I think if you're working in, in trauma, like it's just really important to have this skill set. Yeah. Um, and so I went, and the um, the first part of the it's, it's a really intense training. It's you know multiple weekends, and you have to have consultation in between and after, mm. and um, you know you have to kind of do it on your own and, and come back and talk about it. And um, you know. Now that I understand more about neurophysiology, it makes more sense to me about why that it works. But I think the really important thing is that it does work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just think that there's there's a there's a buy-in piece because it does sound really odd. Um, I think I I talk a lot about the Besser Vandelkolk study where they compared EMDR to psychotropic medication, and they mm. found that. Um, I believe that the, what they found is that about 60% of individuals who um, only had three sessions of EMDR had a 100% reduction of trauma symptomology. And that stayed that way even mm. when they came back later on, which, which is not the case with psychotropic medication because, of course, when an individual stops at medications, the symptoms come back. Right. Um, and, and that, for me, like when you think most... Most trauma-focused treatment takes years. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And so for an individual, and I have seen this time and again, you know, after we do that work before the work that I talked about earlier of, mm-hmm. like, emotion regulation and, like, set, you know, creating, like, a safe place and those kinds of things um, so that the experience of this exposure-type therapy isn't re-traumatizing, um, you know, I've seen people work through things that they have carried for like 30 years and mm. 30 minutes. And I know it sounds too good to be true. <laughs> you know, I know mm-hmm. it does, but I, I have seen it and it, it's, it's really, it's beautiful. Mm. Okay. So I think people are still going to be curious. 
whenever we each of us say we at one point thought it was voodoo mm-hmm. um, <laughs> so it's just not it's it like, just something new you know it's a it's a newer modality you know it's um i think what when bessel van der Kolk talks about his study it's like well we were just convinced that this was going to be on the cover of like times magazine like mm-hmm. this is just such a quint such quintessential research and then you know mm-hmm. there was there was somewhat of a of a backlash, I think, because it was just difficult. It just, it's new, and I think you know that's nerve wracking yeah. for people. Right. Just explain a little bit more about what it is inside the session for the layman. So, like, what it's like to experience EMDR as a client. So, um, typically, what we will do the, um, is there's an, a specific EMDR treatment planning protocol where. Um, you know, we, I ask really specific, we ask really specific questions as EMDR therapists, um, things like, well, what is it that you want to work on? If you were to put it into a word or a phrase, what would that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times people say, I want to be more confident or I just want to experience more peace in my life or, mm-hmm. you know, I want, um, I want joy or, you know, I want the social anxiety to go down or something along those lines. And then, you know, I'll ask, what's a, what's a recent example that represents this issue? And it may be, well, you know, I, um, you know, I was going into the coffee shop this morning and my heart was racing before I could even have the, you know, conversation about what I wanted to order or those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And so then, um, you know, we, we delve into like, all the different facets of that experience. So like, what's the image that represents the worst part? What negative belief are you having about yourself as you think of it? What's the, what are the emotions? And then where do you feel those in your body? And then we use what's called the float back technique where, um, I then asked them to, um, allow your mind to float back to an earlier time when you may have felt this way before and just notice what comes to mind. And typically Mm -hmm. it's very, it's like, three to five specific core memories mm. or scenarios that have, have happened often. Um, and really it's just about trusting the client's brain because like what needs to come out will come out. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, we, we talk about like, well, what other situations trigger this problem for you in your current life? We talk about creating a future template. Like how would you like to respond to these situations in the future? And then what are your current resources? Like, you know, what Mm -hmm. kinds of things do you like to do? What are your people that support you? Those kinds of things. And Mm -hmm. then the next session, we typically, I typically start, um, well, all EMDR therapists typically start with a touchstone memory or the worst memory. Mm. Um, Trauma builds on itself. And so if you can get to the first time that the, that the individual remembers learning to feel that way about themselves and about their world and really reprocess that, sometimes it's a generalization effect to where the later memories feel less disturbing as well. Um, and so typically, you know, an individual, and, and, you, and you can understand like how the, it's creating the safe place is so important because I'm, at that point, I'm I'm kind of walking through the dark night of the soul with them. It's the worst memories of their lives, and mm-hmm. we're um, going to really go through it in detail in session. And, um, you know, I ask them, what image represents the worst part of that? Like, wh- um, you know, what negative belief are you having about yourself? But then I ask them, what would you prefer to believe about yourself, which is a lot of times the opposite. So if an individual is thinking, like, you know, at age eight, they remember, you know, they're they're 
their dad leaving for work and not coming back or something along mm-hmm. those lines. You know, the negative belief is, you know, I'm unlovable or I'm not worthwhile. I'm not worth loving those sure. kinds of things. And the person in my life that's supposed to love me unconditionally leaves me behind who would want me. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and they, and usually, I mean, if I'm working with an adult, they, there's a part of them that does that, that, if they were talking to another eight-year-old, that they would easily be able to say, you know, mm-hmm. you are lovable and you're worthwhile, and that's because of him, not because of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, you know, to check the work at that point, we ask, um, from one to seven, how true does that statement feel to you now, of that, po- that validity of the positive cognition, which is that I am lovable and typically you can go inside your body and kind of see how disturbing and how, you know, how true that that statement feels as you bring mm-hmm. up that memory in the here and now. And, and then we just ask like, what are the emotions, sadness, anger, shame, you know, what's coming up for you? And then we ask how disturbing is that from zero to 10? Um, and of course that's a subjective unit of disturbance or mm-hmm. suds. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, people can say a range from zero to 10 and then um, zero being neutral and 10 being the most disturbing that you can imagine. And then where do you feel that in your body? And then, you know, I ask them, you know, bring up that image, bring up that negative belief about yourself, bring up the emotions and where you feel that in your body and just notice. And then we start to do the eye movement. Um, and typically there's, there's an intense emotional reaction and Um, you know, people, I don't know where my client's mind is going to go, but I know that eventually, um, the brain is going to kind of, um, especially if we've done our work before the work, um, tap into the adaptive memory network and kind of resolve those issues. I mean, the client really gets the medal in that kind of therapy because it's just their brain processing through it. It's, it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. any, any other part of the body, if you, you know, cut your arm, your body will mobilize to heal that wound. It's just, we're removing the obstacles. I think a lot of times, you know, coping, avoidance is a really natural coping mechanism, but at the same time, when you're ready, like Mm -hmm. you kind of, you have to walk through the desert to get to the (laughs) other side with this stuff. Yeah. And so there's also, um, yeah, in addition to that focused, those focus questions, I really like that. Um, especially the, would you tell a seven-year-old this or an eight-year-old this, coming around and having them look at it from a different perspective that seems like that could be really helpful. So those kinds of things, um, we call those cognitive interweaves. So like, but typically um, you need to lace the wound before uh, before you jump in there with those kind of cognitive interweaves. So like mm-hmm. someone might need to just cry it out and just really feel all of that pain and anger. And, and then, you know, like, sure. yeah. you know, if there's a blocking belief, like it's not okay to feel okay about this or something along those lines, it's like, okay, like, what does that child need from you now? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like, people are just, like, they just need a hug. And, like, mm-hmm. and that's really emotional, too, just thinking right. about, like, what it would have been like to mm. get that repair in the moment that you needed and kind of giving that to yourself. Mm-hmm. At what point does the, uh, the eye movement come into this? So um, the eye movement, after, after we kind of go through those lines of questioning you know I ask them to bring all of that up and then I say um you know just follow my fingers some therapists use a light bar um 
I use my fingers typically. Um, and, and I will take my fingers across their visual field and they'll just look back and forth, back and forth. And then we call that bilateral stimulation. Um, some people get distracted by the eye movement or, you know, just want to close their eyes to go into the memory in a different way. You know, it's, it's really individualist, individualized, but I also have, um, these things that we call tappers, which, um, are these little things that you hold in your hands and they vibrate and that gives the tactile bilateral stimulation. And I think, you know, the, the way that I understand it working is that it, uh, it stimulates each hemisphere of the brain and, um, kind of enhances whatever you're focusing on in that moment. Um, and so I just, you know, people just sit with whatever comes up for them and, you know, and, and a lot of times in silence, and then I stop the bilateral stimulation, whether it's eye movement or tactile, and I just say, you know, take a deep breath if you'd like. What are you noticing? And for every person, it's different. You know, maybe I'm, they're noticing, like, when their mom came in after the dad left, or, like, things that they hadn't thought about in a really long time, or I'm noticing, like, myself, like, crying, or I'm noticing a lot of anger, or, you know, whatever it is, and then typically I say, go with that and then start the the bilateral stimulation again and mm-hmm. um and then that goes on you know for 30 to 45 minutes and it takes one to three sessions per memory mm. and then at the you know at the end you know a lot of times uh there's so much that goes into it but um <laughs> then we kind of come back and ask you know how disturbing is that now from zero to ten typically there's a decrease sometimes you know, there's other things that come up that are, you know, it, the disturbance in this way is decreased, but now I'm like thinking about this and, you know, then mm-hmm. we work through that and, um, you know, it's all about just kind of being, being in the moment with that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've got that very structured approach with everybody. Yeah. Right? So that is nice as a therapist, I bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's to have something a tool in my toolbox that's so effective yeah yeah right and um i've also noticed um sand tray is involved in this as well so talking about other ways to do trauma processing um if you think about um trauma focused cognitive behavioral therapy um especially when you're talking about with kiddos um pop Um, when you get to that point when you're um, doing trauma processing, an individual can create what's called a trauma narrative. So that can look like um, maybe writing down in detail what happened and how you, uh, what you experienced and your emotions and the thoughts that came out of those kinds of things. And that, you know, it could look like um, painting a picture about it. And this is something that, that adults can benefit from as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sand tray is, um, where you have a tray of sand and you have, um, a collection or a variety of miniatures that an individual can place into the sand tray to create a story or, or a scene. Um, and then people are able to process thoughts and emotions and things through those archetypes. Um, and so, and then that's, you know, that's really, really powerful as well to be able to, um, externalize what's happening internally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, you know, people, what needs to come out comes out through art too. I, Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways art, um, 
bypasses an individual's defense mechanisms. Like mm-hmm. they're not able to um, be as cognitive about it and sure. maybe not even realize that this specific miniature like meant that to them until, yeah. you know, you're sitting down with a therapist and they're reflecting and they're, you know, just kind of yeah. going through that together. Because And also it's easier to express yourself in those ways for someone who might have a hard time verbally expressing it. They can have a starting point to express it. You know, yeah. you can say this represents this and kind of come to a place where you can explain it more from there rather than just simply trying to explain it. So it could be a, an aid for someone who's not skilled in expressing their feelings. Well, when an individual experiences trauma, especially, it's difficult mm-hmm. to articulate yourself through sure. words alone. Um, and you need other other ways to express maybe um, something that feels more abstract. Um, mm-hmm. I think the most disturbing thing about going through something traumatic is how you makes you feel about yourself and it can really impact your identity, your access to your own internal world. And you may not even know to even express it through words mm-hmm. until you, you go through something like that. Right. Is there anything else you'd like to add about this subject right now? You've told me a lot about trauma and treatment of trauma, and I know you're very passionate about it. I have a lot of experience in this. Some of your background is in sexual assault, but now you're you're broadened out in all sorts of types of trauma. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I could talk all day about (laughs) trauma-focused treatment, and it is a big passion of mine because, you know, I think... um, you know, I want people to understand that the that the brain really is plastic, that over time it changes and that it's not like, you know, mm-hmm. like people used to think that by the time you hit adulthood, you were just hardwired a certain way. But like mm. you can really like th- through treatment come in and, mm-hmm. and feel differently about yourself like there's sure. and, and your life and, um, you know, live more intentionally and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that that's a really hopeful kind of piece. And I, I think I my main thing is that I want, I would love to see um, indiv- all types of work be more trauma informed. Hmm. Um, and what that means is that when you, especially as a, as a therapist, when you're sitting down with someone, the question in my mind is not what's wrong with you, um, but what happened to you. Um, and I think. Um, I'm hopeful that that encourages people to seek the help that they need, knowing that, you know, I'm not going to be sitting there thinking, you know, any, any of those kind of negative mm-hmm. things that maybe are coming up for you. Right. At the client. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause it, as we, you know, s- said at the outset, makes a big impact on how we live life today. So that can impact our relationships, how we see ourselves, impacts the way that um, we treat other people and we let other people treat us. And so yeah, and it I plays mean, out through all of life. A lot of times, you know, people are um, unconsciously recreating their own trauma, hoping for a different outcome. And so, mm-hmm. you know, patterns that they've had earlier in life, you know, that seem to be ongoing, but, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, I'm passionate about helping release people from what feels like, you know, being trapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's great. It seems like you have a lot of skills to match your passion and I appreciate you joining me to talk about some of that today. And, um, let us end with this one thing. If, if there's someone listening to this and, and they think, 
well, maybe I want to get some work with this. What's the first thing that you would tell them? You know, I would tell them that it takes a lot of courage to seek therapy. I understand that even just walking through the doors here is scary, sitting mm-hmm. down with a total stranger and talking about these really personal things. Like, that, right. that, is, that, that, that is scary. But, so true. Um, but that, you know, there is help out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, it is de- definitely possible, you know, if you feel like you are trapped in a cycle of behavior or emotions that you feel like you can't control on a daily basis, like I would just encourage you to reach out. You have been listening to yet another episode of Mapping Healthy Minds. Mapping Healthy Minds podcast is sponsored by Compass Counseling. We all have mental health and taking care of it can't wait. You can learn more about Compass Counseling or book an appointment online at www.compasscounseling.com. Compass offers online counseling and in-person counseling in Paducah, Henderson, and Owensboro, Kentucky. Also, we have a little freebie for you. Compass Counseling is giving away to all our listeners a free copy of the ebook 10 Questions to Ask Before Starting Counseling. And you can get that copy by finding the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, you may uh, enjoy other episodes. And you can find them on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and on MappingHealthyMinds.com. We are also on social media, as we well should be. Facebook and Instagram are a couple places to get more information about Mapping Healthy Minds and the guests that we have on the show. So, I'm your host, Justin Lewis, and until next time, remember that we all have mental health. We should all take care of it.